The Great Improbability. This is part eight of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we lived In the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author Dying is an easy thing to do. Death proceeds easily, without malice or effort. A matter simply of probability, a settling in to equilibrium. The greatest of effort, on the other hand, is required to sustain life against the imperative of entropy, of the universe winding down. And no molecule or star, no cell or person, prospers long in isolation. November, a prescient chill of winter. The sun sets early now. The time of growing and harvest is gone. The shadows are long, the frost returned, the warmth and green of the land forgotten. It is a season of dying for fields and farms and their most vulnerable creatures. Among them, a troubled young woman, pitching hay up to the loft above the cow pens, loses her footing, falling backward, striking her head on a railing, tumbling into a pit of manure. Injured from the fall, exhausted after her long days, Emotionally drained and physically ill, she cannot climb out. Oh, God. Let me die here. In the shit. That's all I am. The young woman has been living in grief and exhaustion, lurching from day to day, trying not to feel, cursing her guilt. Her mind wanders. Started out by killing my mother. Hated in school. Tied to a pole like an animal. Not even worth that. Sent my brothers to prison. Can't stop my father's drinking. Don't care anymore. Used to take care of myself. Now I can't eat. Can't afford a doctor. Only one in town never met him. No one will miss me. She lies injured in the manure, inhaling its toxic gases, calling for death. All around her, and for meters below, billions of bacteria work silently, digesting the organic mass. Their flatulence of methane and hydrogen sulfide rises to the surface, mixes invisibly with water vapor rising from the damp floor and from the young woman's pores. 
The gases condense in the chill November air, making a fog lifted to the old rafters by its warm buoyancy. Megan Leary's exhaling breath grows thinner, adds to the fog, and troubles its peaceful rising. The clock of the universe ticks away. As many stars as the bacteria around Megan decay also, their magnificent burning yielding mass to energy, order to entropy, all sliding down nature's slope to equilibrium, to disintegration. A minor colleague of the stars, already nearer its death than its birth, sets in the west on earth, pouring out its own life in red shadows through the old barn's parting walls. Cows complaining, hum of insects, wind around the barn's corners and crevices, crickets and birds, lowering in pitch and volume, drifting away. Megan feels warm. The pain diminishes. Her peripheral vision begins to narrow, the darkness growing on all sides. She will stay there undiscovered, adding to the decay and becoming indistinguishable from it, gone in an instant of cosmological time. The shrinking circle of her sight closes on the barn's rafters, receding in darkness. Okay, the crazy scientist will say to the graduates, logic directs us to consider freedom as an object of scientific faith. In other words, we must minimize the constraints on our exploration, on the hypotheses we adopt, on our sharing of ideas. History is crowded with examples of such constraints limiting freedom, impeding the progress of science and of civilization some remain with us today. The Bank, 1977 At the end of the day, I take in the extraordinary sweep of New York Harbor, far below us. I watch the bobbing lights of little ferry boats carrying luckier workers home to their beer and TV. I listen to the great building groan. Yes, groan it really does. And sways too, quite noticeably from the top floors. It's an intentional flexibility built in by its designers, part of its strength. I watch and listen as the offices grow dark and quiet around me and below. I marvel at this pinnacle of civilization and my perch atop it. 
Associates work late nights in the big law firms, struggling to win favor and make partner. So here I am with a few others, finishing some tedious research into precedence. Suddenly, I stumble across some meeting minutes that contain familiar but most unexpected names. I sit up. What the hell is this? What'd you find, Tom? Guess who was over here on the M.Ed. deal? So tell me. Tim Maloney. You're shitting me. In our office? Yeah, look at this. And with most of the heavy breathers from downstairs. The bank is a law firm, but it has close ties to a major New York investment banking firm, the widely consulted Frankel Brothers, occupying three floors just downstairs from our perch. Among our mutual clients is Amalgamated Edison, the largest electric and gas utility in the eastern U.S., generally referred to as AMED. These three are made friends by common enemies as much as common interests, for it is enemies that stir the true passions of large organizations. Prominent among these are politicians of liberal tendency, and in particular the family of Maloney's, who have dominated New York and New England elections and patronage appointments for three generations. Actually, I'm not sure exactly why I dislike the Maloney's. I've never really met one. But my father, who always pretends to have a cold when mentioning that family, so it comes out, Baloney's, explained, It is they and their party who are ruining the country. I have grown up accepting the dinner table characterizations as righteous and obvious. Hard work and capital built this country, Thomas. Men like your grandfather were free to rise to the top here. They deserved to keep what they earned in fair competition and pass it on to their grandchildren, Thomas. I mumbled in appreciation. The Maloney's and their ilk rose by convincing an uneducated... Sometimes he included the overeducated... ...populace that these earnings should be shared, that the land and its improvements belong to the public, that government should intervene in the distribution of wealth... That kind of thinking can destroy a republic, Thomas. My father always reminds me that... We live in a republic, not a democracy. So it's unusual, to say the least, to find records of Timothy Maloney participating in a meeting with senior bank, Frankel, and AMED principals. What could possibly bring him here? Must be something really weird about the AMED deal. Political opposition to large utility plants? Potential conflicts of interest? Now I recall a discussion of how these might be avoided. My bloodline lets me slip into meetings, and my low rank lets me slip out. So the senior attorneys and clients have become accustomed to my coming and going without notice. Momentarily interested in something, I sit up. The minutes of earlier negotiations have lifted a corner of memory. Having nothing more interesting to do, I tug at the flap of records. Meeting minutes are, of course the most polite and obscure form of record, never really recorded at the meeting but well thereafter, written by lawyers to establish a paper trail of legal process and protection. I can't tell, therefore, what had really happened at the meeting, but I can sniff a major compromise. And why was I excluded? I slumped down again. I hate this job. I hate compromise. Shit, I hate myself. I scribble a poem. Mostly I'm bored, entirely ignored, just shuffling the grind, pushed from behind. There's another thing I've learned that law firms and investment banking firms have in common. Their source of profit. Transactions. Transactions. All the complex, abstruse, 
detailed, voluminous processes and paperwork that go into making a deal work. Like the elusive truth in a legal contest, the substance of a deal is of little interest to those who structure and finance it. An energy plant looks like a sardine cannery or a shopping center or a hospital. It is defined by its projected cash flow, equity shares, capital structure, and discount rates, not by function or social impact. The larger the transaction, the higher the fees earned by those who make it work. The deal's the thing. Wherein we'll teach the lawyer to be king, I recited. My fellow vassals probably never read Hamlet. Didn't get it. My cynicism is scaring me now, like the symptoms of my depression. Maybe the path I'm being pushed along leads nowhere good. At night, my dreams are full of violence. Now the stinging criticisms at my oral exams in law school come back to me, echoing in the dark offices. Brigham! 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 The practice of law does not attempt moral judgments. Who are you to decide Who are you, Who are you to decide that? Brigham! Our system relies on competent legal advocacy on both sides of any issue. Do you have a better way to reach fair resolutions? So the major celebrations at the firm all deal with beating the competition. Other prominent law firms representing opposing clients rather than with the victory of a cause or a principle. All this is normal business practice and entirely legal. And the partners, of course, consider it not just fair, but essential to the system of jurisprudence. But I still have my doubts about that system. Dangerous doubts. Anyway, such a celebration is scheduled for tomorrow morning, and it has something to do with those suspicious minutes. It will include all the heavy breathers from the investment banking firm downstairs. I'm going to sit in and listen, even though I haven't been invited. of The Great Improbability were Dennis Johnson, Dolly McDaniels, Gene McDaniels, Tane Collins, DJ Ingalls, Duncan Inches, and Michael Venn. Produced by Dennis Collins Johnson.